Welcome to the Outcomes Rocket Podcast, where we inspire collaborative thinking, improved outcomes, and business success with today's most successful and inspiring healthcare leaders and influencers. And now your host, Saul Marquez. Outcomes Rocket listeners, welcome back once again to the Outcomes Rocket Podcast, where we chat with today's most inspiring and successful healthcare leaders. If you like what you listen to today, or you like what you listen to in general with the podcast, go to uh, iTunes Podcasts and give us a rating and a review and subscribe. We love to hear your feedback and always are looking for ways to do things better, or keep doing things that you're enjoying on the show. So without further ado, I have an outstanding guest for you. His name is Jim Harper. He's the co-founder and chief operating officer at Sond Health. And so Jim has just a wealth of experience in this industry uh, as an entrepreneur. He's had an experience here at at, uh, Sond Health for the last almost three years, but he's also been an entrepreneur in residence and also has a deep understanding of bioengineering systems with his experience at MIT. So before I go into it any further, I just want to give you a warm welcome, Jim, and uh, open up the microphone to you. Well, thanks, Saul. And I think it's great to be a part of the conversation you've started on Outcomes Rocket. And, you know, just a little bit of context for my background and and why, as somebody who's formally trained as a biochemist and with a long background in technology development, that I'm so interested in in health outcomes. It's really started back with when I was studying neuroscience and looking at Alzheimer's disease and mechanisms. I realized that for me, basic science and the big questions there had some limits and there were other big questions that I wanted to be able to answer, but we just couldn't. We didn't have the information tools. So I've been really excited about both the drive to improve healthcare as well as the convergence of technologies that may help us do it. And so that's why why I'm here. That's pretty awesome. And the meandering road of research and, and just biochemistry brought you here just to create a bridge to really fulfill that missing gap that you experienced. And Jim, tell us a little bit about Sound Health and, and what you guys do there. Yeah, so Sound Health is it's a digital medicine company where we're developing voice-based technology that has the potential to transform the way that mental and physical health is diagnosed and monitored. And I think our goal is really to be innovating at the intersection of voice interactive devices, machine intelligence and AI systems, and the overall healthcare system to enable what we call persistent health awareness via technologies that are always sensing and always secure. So we've been demonstrating that proprietary analytics that are running on devices that are already in almost every pocket and entering more homes every day have the potential to transform what are often imperceptible changes in the sound of our voice, so how we say something, not what we are saying, and transform those into objective and quantitative information about a range of important health states that affect the nervous, the muscular, and the respiratory systems, and maybe even more. And so are you thinking like tonality things like that? Yeah. So speech is a a really interesting thing for a variety of reasons. One, it's unique to humans and it's really the most complex thing we do. It involves more active muscle groups Mm -hmm. uh, operating at the same time than any other physical action that we do. It involves large numbers of brain circuits and kind of proportionally fractional areas of the brain to produce effective speech. And then it requires a healthy respiratory system to activate the source. And so what we're looking at are how changes in the physiology of those three major systems 
are reflected in acoustic changes. So back to your, your earlier point, it can be changes in pitch slope, changes in intensity, changes in pacing of the speech, and even more so, you know, we can describe mathematically thousands of different low-level features that represent different aspects of those acoustics. And only a subset of those are we seeing in our investigations vary when the physiology of those systems change. And so it's wow. finding those and appropriately weighting and combining those with the best analytical methods, are we able to then get outputs from this voice analysis that correlate very well with existing best measures in health? Oh, that is super interesting. And just to think that the technology necessary to do this is already in many of our pockets. That's right. So, you know, I think the convergence that's happening, we're all very aware and we see more of it every year. The computing power in our pockets exceeds what took us to the moon. And I think that just within the past year, the explosion of, of voice services from Apple, Amazon, Samsung, you know, a range of people has shown that the underlying capability to analyze voice in real time exists, at least uh, with respect to analyzing the content of what we say. Now, we can argue about the value and what we're able to do with that so far, but I think the trajectory is, is universally seen as very positive. And I think what we're trying to do is offer a new dimension of information beyond just the linguistic content that can help move these technologies from just menial assistance that automate things that we could already do to ourselves to provide more transformational capabilities that disrupt things like healthcare. This is interesting. And tell me, Jim, what do you think around this topic should be a, a you know, just a something that healthcare leaders should be focused on? So being newer to healthcare, right? Long time in technology, I've been talking to a lot of leaders in the space and going to a lot of places where they gather. And I hear conversations about transitions from volume to value-based care and moving from reactive to preventative patient management philosophies. Yes. But within that, you know, as I look at it with my system perspective, what I see is a glaring lack of data on what is happening in our health day to day with a frequency that is sufficient to help us understand what does the transition from health to the disease look like and how can we measure it in a paradigm that isn't what we think of today as diagnostics. Mm -hmm. And so I think translating that into a different question, it is if we are going to seek better outcomes and in ways that are measurable, what is it that's going to allow that measurement to be affordable and to understand how to quantify whether prevention is working? Yeah. And, and so the, the thing that comes to mind, Jim, is we've got these awesome technologies. How do we scale them? How do we make them available? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. And so for me, right, it started a number of years ago. I was excited as everybody else thinking about the potential of wearables, right, to really right. address the gap in information. And after wearing between five and 10 wearables at a time for a couple of years, <laughs> came to a couple of conclusions. And one is, even for somebody as motivated as I am to understand, the burden of operating what are otherwise simple devices is actually quite high. Mm -hmm. And two, the cost, even if they are $100 a, a person, if you scale that to population scale health management, it increases the cost at, at a time where it's really kind of addressing the unsustainable increase in cost that is the driving motivation. So I 
just found those to be very inconsistent. And what I saw as the the white space, and I think Pure Tech, you know, when I joined them, was was seeing the same opportunity, is how do we eliminate the cost and the device burden and the user burden with collecting this information by enabling new analytical technologies on devices people already own. And so you look at this space, and people have tried, and I think successfully in, in some domains, to utilize accelerometers or activity on the phone to get insights into behavior, which is appropriate to behavioral health in some ways. But to be really relevant, we need what I think is the equivalent of the, the CBC or the blood panel. You know, how can we take single samples or, or small numbers of samples from people that don't require them to change their daily activities, but derive a number of meaningful tests that give us the equivalent of a thermometer, right? We don't have to have a true diagnostic, but we need to understand better how to allocate scarce resources and costly resources to the patients that will actually benefit from them. And I think that's at Sond, the driving force behind why we make choices on the way to implement the technology, and I think the the value propositions that, that we see most exciting emerging from it. No, really interesting, Jim. And, and you bring up a good point, right? Because I forget what the statistic is, but the majority of healthcare is like comes from 5% of those in the system. And if, you know, if we could focus the devices on that small niche population that's causing most of the expense, maybe that's where we start. No, and I think you're right. So for things like wearables that I was talking about earlier, where there is some cost into implementing the systems, that's absolutely right. They're best addressed to the sickest people in the system. If what you're trying to do is not prevent healthcare transactions and not prevent costly care episodes, which I think is implied by targeting those those sickest individuals, yes. but if what you want to do is improve outcomes by helping people not to need that care in the first place or not to transition to disease, then I think the question is different. And I think that's where the economy really changes and where passive technologies that essentially are free to implement but derive their value from the utilization of the information and the services that they queue is where I think I'm excited about the potential. It's a longer-term potential, to be sure. Yes. But it's one where the time is now from a technology perspective. And I think that progressive leaders in healthcare who are really looking to create new models of care that are based on uh, preventing disease are the kinds of partners that I think are ideal for this technology. It's really fascinating to hear perspective on that, Jim, because yes, on the one hand, my approach with my suggestion was, yes, you know, let's go to that population, let's cost. But you're saying, let's keep people out of the healthcare system. Let's keep them healthy through the use of technology. Absolutely. As a long-term goal, I think that's where we all want to be in terms of like the ultimate outcome is to prevent us from having to encounter the system in those costly ways. Now, in the, the road from here to there, I think there are several addressable places where we can begin that process and looking at kind of conditions that are traditionally difficult to diagnose that are heterogeneous in the the kind of way that the disease manifests in individuals and that have long lags between onset of disease and diagnosis, those are really interesting places to start using the technology that bridge kind of near-term value propositions, but also demonstrating the long-term potential of constant persistent health awareness to address needs. So a few examples that that I tend to think about there are in in neuroscience, where a lot of the the assessment and diagnosis today is heavily reliant on interactions in the clinical setting, not just on diagnostic tests. 
So for Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, depression, those fall into this category. But it's stunning when you look at depression, the diagnostic lag, the time between a first episode of depression and when somebody actually engages the system in care is on average around four years. So when we talk about taking burden out of the system and improving outcomes, if we can do something to reduce that lag and reduce the number of episodes, I think we're doing something very meaningful that's, that's addressable. It's a really good example, yeah. Right. In Alzheimer's, it, those kind of numbers and diagnostic lag from first onset of, of cognitive impairment may be on the order of one to one and a half years. And in Parkinson's, it's more like a year. It's a process of ruling out a lot of other things that takes a lot of time and burden. If we have objective measures that can help winnow down and narrow those. They don't have to be the diagnostics themselves to have significant value in improving outcomes. Oh, really, really interesting. Yeah, it's a good distinction that you made there, Jim. So would you give us an example of what you've done there at your at uh, San Health to apply some of these ideas to do things differently and better outcomes? Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about the work we've done in depression so far. So if we look at screening for depression, the United States Preventative Services Task Force last year put out two recommendations that suggest that all adults and adolescents in the United States be screened at least once a year for depression in recognition of the burden that's Mm -hmm. associated with untreated disease. But if you look at the latest ambulatory care survey, the number of individuals who are actually being screened is around 4.2%. So we have, you know, a 96% addressable market there in terms of of people who aren't being captured by the existing screen. There are a lot of reasons for that, but we feel like, and I love your conversations with other people about access to care because access to something like that screen is a big part of that. And, and one question we have is, is why does that screen in satisfying that necessarily have to be in the care event or the, the visit to the primary care physician? Why can't it be done in close coordination with it? So the PHQ-9 is the most common instrument that is used. It's a 10-question questionnaire, and you answer multiple choice depending on the severity of how you've experienced symptoms over the last couple of weeks. You sum the score, and then over a number of studies, they've validated a threshold score of 10 or more that indicates moderate to severe risk for depression. So in practice, that's the most commonly used screen. What we've been doing is doing studies where we offer our research tool, which is an app that's on iOS and Android phones, ask people to provide basic voice samples. So these can be as simple as repeating ah for five seconds or something like padaka padaka padaka, which is called a diodocokinetic task. We're just getting voice samples. We may ask them to read a sentence or just give us a prompt in speech. Then we ask them to complete the PHQ-9, which gives us the training reference. And what we have seen is in thousands of subjects now to date who have completed this study with us that we can take as little as 10 seconds of speech and derive the vocal biomarkers, create Mm -hmm. models that predict the PHQ-9 score that agree a high percentage of the time. So now instead of requiring people to recall their symptoms, sometimes that's imperfect or complete the questionnaire, now we have something that's consistent with a quick voice sample yes. and someday even passive, right? So mm. being able to listen and derive 